Hello and welcome to the Cleopatra's Bling podcast. I'm your host, Olivia Cummings, founder of the jewellery brand Cleopatra's Bling. Cleopatra's Bling travels around the world meeting fascinating creatives, craftsmen and women and cultural experts to inspire our artisanal collections. This podcast invites you into those intimate conversations which bring tradition and practices from the past into the present. Today's creatives often wear many hats. They may be passionate about one thing, but use their many talents to express their passion. I met today's guest while browsing Instagram. Nicola Stowers is the founder and head of Honeyfingers, a creative beekeeping practice combining honeymaking, poetry and art in Melbourne, Australia. Promoting, exploring and experimenting with bee cultures, the intersection between bees and humanity is what Honeyfingers is all about. We spoke to Nick about how urban beekeeping has been transformed and how communities have kept bee culture alive throughout history. Hi, Nick. Hi, Olivia. So can you tell us about what you do? I'm the founder of a creative beekeeping studio in Melbourne called Honeyfingers, and we do a number of things. We keep bees not just to produce honey, but also to educate the community about bees, to pollinate local gardens, and we do a number of creative projects that often involve installations and sculptural collaborations with bees. And why honey? I think I was always actually really quite into honey. I think I read Peter Carey's Bliss all the way back in the late 80s, And there's this wonderful character in there called Honey Barbara. And I won't get into it, but there's this beautiful romance that exists between Honey Barbara and the main character of the book. And I think, and she had leatherwood honey. And I was like, what's leatherwood honey? Because I lived on the Gold Coast in Queensland. And I sort of discovered that there was these kind of monofloral varieties of honey. And it was a little bit of a love story. And I actually went back to university as an adult, as a mature age student. and from my very first studio, I was exploring the animal architecture of the honeybee superorganism. And so the two things came together, food and design, and we had honeyfingers. And what's your favourite part about it? It's definitely the keeping of the bees. Everything from catching a swarm in spring and housing the swarm, giving them a new home, looking after them, helping them grow, and the actual physical act of beekeeping, it's, this, it's really interesting because on the one hand, when I first started beekeeping, growing up allergic to bees, I was really afraid of bees. And there's this beautiful little mindset you have to get into, which is if you can accept the possibility of getting stung by bees and relax with that, it becomes this quite beautiful meditative experience and it's such a great um you know allegory for life but it's actually just this really beautiful experience it's a little like swimming in the ocean once you've gone beekeeping it doesn't matter what mood you're in when you start you always come out feeling more refreshed so beekeeping is definitely my favorite part of it all could you describe your honey hive so that our listeners can imagine it well we have about 15 different sites in Melbourne. Most of them are actually in people's gardens or 
they're on rooftop gardens, but I've only actually got a couple that are technically on roofs. So we run what's called Langstroth hives, which are, as you can imagine, the kind of the wooden box. We tend to just stain the boxes with a um, non-toxic water-based oil on the outside. So when you look at the hive, uh, you've got these kind of natural timber tone boxes. We do um, paint usually the bottom uh, of the hive and the landing board. We just paint that white because it tends to um, need a little bit more protection and the lid will often paint white. So you've just got this quite, you know, natural white and timber tones. The, the boxes are usually minimum two um, high and then they get, you know, three or four high during the season and they're usually placed in locations in a garden that are north facing and in australia north facing is towards the sun so think of it like south facing in the northern hemisphere and we try to locate them where they've got a little bit of shade during the day and where they've got a, a free flight path in front of them so they can come and go without interfering with humans or or buildings or laundry or stuff like that and they'll be tucked away in a part of the garden that isn't necessarily hidden but it's kind of strategically placed so it's out of the way of other human activity. So you are also a poet and a sculptor and you consider your beekeeping as part of a broader creative practice. Could you tell us a bit about how these different areas of your life intersect? Yeah. Um, it's always interesting because when I describe <clears throat> what Honeyfingers does, I sometimes have to select the thing that the person's most interested in and jump into it through that window, if that makes sense. But basically okay. there's, um, there's a whole community of, of people around that collectively sort of come along and work on these projects. And originally it was all about just the bees. And then I sort of realized that everyone who was coming beekeeping was an artist. And then you know, just organically it was like, hey, do you want to do this collaboration? And we started to do these collaborations. And the first one was with an Italian artist, Giorgio Maciunic, who now lives back in Italy. And it was called Bread and Honey. And we were exploring the connections between human food security and honeybees. And we sort of looked at these two elements, bread, which isn't such an archetype of of our diets and honey, which is also such an old food. But then we sort of put them together in an unusual way. So essentially the honeycomb was literally attached to the bread. So that's an example of how through the practice of beekeeping, through meeting people in the community, you have these opportunities that open up to do collaborative works. And that's an example of some sculptural work. And we've done essentially every year we do one or two more um, collaborations and the people that are involved in the collective come from a whole variety of different backgrounds. So you've got florists, sculptors, musicians, painters, scientists, cooks, uh, so photographers. And so it always, you know, depends. The collaboration tends to depend upon what the, you know, the, the, people that are involved at that time are bringing to the situation too. And so how does Honeyfingers incorporate these different elements together? I think it's the bees. The bees are always at the centre of everything. 
So whenever, I mean, so, you know, you need bees to make honey. You need bees to collaborate to make art. Um, you need bees to go beekeeping. So you might have all of these yeah. different disciplines, but at the centre of it, it's always about bees. It always comes back to bees and and the lessons you can kind of learn from beekeeping, which is all about yeah. really minute observations and just being aware of where the sun is and where the wind's coming from and what season you're at and noting what flowers have opened up as you've been walking in to do beekeeping. So it always, it always comes back to bees. So how did honey extraction, hive making and the creation of honey for human use first begin? And what's its history? Well, humans have always been honey hunters. And so there's this... Um, there's this fantastic painting in Spain, a couple of hours from Valencia. I was actually there a couple of years ago. And you sort of go for a hike up the mountains and you walk along this little path and then you come to a cave, which is more like kind of like a rock shelter. So imagine sort of a shelter underneath a cliff. And there's all of these amazing paintings there. And these paintings are like maybe... 10,000 years old. And if you make yeah. an appointment with the guide, you can go and have a look. Yeah, I mean, there's all sorts of stuff there. There's like, you know, ibis, there's, um, you know, all those, the megafauna stuff you'd expect. And then there's this drawing of the honey hunter. And, and what it is, is this really, really long drawing. So it's like a, about a metre and a half. And there's like a rope ladder that's drawn with this, line that comes down and then on the top of it there's like a little stick figure and they're putting their hand those whoever the artist was painted this using a hole in the cliff and the hole in the cliff signifies the the actual um bee nest and there's these sort of depictions of bees flying around with this honey hunter putting their arm into the hole and they've got like a little bag on their back and then all the way down at the bottom of the rope there's another little figure of a human looking up. And wow. it's the first known, yeah, and this is the connection between beekeeping and art and honey. So you can see this sort of, like imagine the Venn diagram, one circle of food in honey, one circle of art, uh, one circle of um, the practice of beekeeping or, or honey hunting. So we've always hunted honey. And then... It, it develops in different ways in different places because the, the, they think the bees were originally maybe down in Southeast Asia and definitely in Africa, and they came up through Africa and spread out through the Middle East and through Europe, and then humans took them with them when they travelled around the world. So we've always had this really close relationship with bees. And there's various different ways that it, it, that beekeeping came to pass, but I'll give you an example of one. And it's how tree beekeeping turned into hive beekeeping. So imagine that you're a beekeeper and, well, you're a honey hunter. You've been hunting bees from trees. And so you look up into the tree, you can see a little hollow in the tree, and the bees are flying in and out. And you essentially go up there and sort of break it open and rob 
the honey out of there. And then they discovered that if you cut a door into that tree, you could come back year after year to the same tree, open the door, take out the honeycomb you want, close the door, and then leave the bees in there. And on the bottom of those trees in places like Russia, because this happens sort of in, in many places, including Eastern Europe, they had these intricate markings, like little crosses and hashes and arrows and circles that they'd carve into these, the bottom of these trees. And that sign indicated who the owner of that tree was. But then imagine that you realize that climbing up the trees every season to do this is actually really dangerous. So they cut the tree down and then they cut that section of log out, lifted it up and put it in an apron. So all of a sudden now you've got that section of the tree that has the beehive inside it sitting in your apiary and you go and do that to your 10 bee trees. So all of a sudden you've got, instead of having your trees, your beehives scattered throughout the forest, you've brought them all into one site. And then essentially people started to use other cavities to house the bees in. So the Western honeybee, Apis mellifera, is a cavity nester. So humans have got, they've adapted very, very well to finding exactly the right type of of um of cavity that the honeybees want and so we went through a stage of having skeps which are you know kind of like the little domes that look like they're made of woven rope and things but the big step forward yeah. was when we started to use boxes and so uh, with removable frames inside so all of a sudden you could pull the frame out extract the honey and put the, the frame back in and you're not really destroying the whole hive and you can also take frames out and inspect them. So imagine the moment in the 1800s where you had the boxes coming in, so you'd have a box that would have frames in it, but they still would put the log on top of it. So you had these hybrid hives, and sometimes it was a log, sometimes it was a skep, and then eventually they got rid of all the other volumes in most places around the world, and we have now what we call modern beekeeping, which is all of those boxes stacked up, which we can expand in spring and summer when the bees need more room and contract by taking them away in winter when the bees cluster down to just one or two boxes. And we can pull frames out, scrape the honey cappings off the frame, put them in a centrifuge or the honey gets spin, spun out and we can put them back in so the bees don't have to build on that comb again, they can just fill it up. So we've from painting in caves 10,000 years ago in Spain all the way through to um, keeping boxes of hives stacked up in Melbourne, you can kind of see this really, really long story and tradition that beekeepers are a part of. So how do the different flowers change the taste of the honey? For example, eucalyptus versus canola. Okay, well, you've got a couple of different types of honey. You've got mono varieties which as the mm -hmm. name suggests is one type so it could be um i don't know let's say red gum and then you've got yeah. polyfloral which is many types for beekeepers like me i'm a stationary beekeeper so i have all these different sites but i don't move my bees around so there's enough food in melbourne to keep my bees happily fed from the beginning of spring all the way through the end of autumn and even 
through winter. So we always have polyfloral varieties of honey. So it tastes like literally a few million flowers. But then with the monofloral varieties, you have what's called um, migratory beekeepers, and they're the beekeepers who chase what they call the honey flow or the nectar flow. So they'll put all their hives on the back of the truck and they'll drive to the canola field, as you mentioned, early in the season, really early, and they put their bees on canola and that gets the bees started. Um, canola crystallises really, really quickly. So if you're heat treating your honey uh, and you're sort of melting it down, it doesn't really matter. For beekeepers like me who are raw honey producers, it's a little bit more problematic. But let's say from canola, then you might decide that you want to put your bees onto some grey box that will be flowering in, in summer. You put them on the back of your car, you find the, the flowers of, of those trees and they may only be flowering for two weeks. You drive them over there, you put them underneath there and away you go once again. And so the honey that comes out of uh, the grey box is usually going to taste um, the eucalyptus honeys are generally darker in colour and they have like a much sort of um, kind of stronger distinctive flavour, whereas when you come back into the city and you've got the polyfloral varieties, which is what I have, you've got a lot of exotic flowers in there too, so you've got lots of lavender and rosemary and all the exotic flowers in Melbourne Uni and Carlton Gardens, and the honey tends to be lighter in colour and kind of lighter in flavour as well. So different honeys have really different characteristics. And to get back to leatherwood, which is the honey I read about as a kid in the 80s and was, you know, and fell in love, it has such a distinctive kind of perfume flavour and it, it, it's in so much Tasmanian honey. And as soon as you taste it, you know exactly what it is. And it's the same with Greek thyme honey or Samari honey. It has this wonderful, light, floral, you know, aroma and flavour to it and you know exactly what it is. And so you've got all these different types of, of characteristics in, in the honey and uh, it's really, really lovely hunting out the different varieties and not just going to the default blended honey in the supermarket. So, you know, in Australia, the honey oil tends to be this sort of medium brown and it's always runny and it always tastes the same. Yeah. I mean, that's nice, but it's kind of like drinking molasses. Wine. <laughs> yeah. It's like, yeah. you know, it's really lovely treating honey as if it's, um, you know, that you, you start to appreciate the different sort of flavours and also it ages. So, in the same way that wine ages and cheese ages and prosciutto ages, and as it ages, it takes on a different feel in your mouth and it takes on different flavours, honey does the same thing. So raw honey, which hasn't been heat-treated, it does crystallise. And a lot of Australians are really wigged out by that. They think it's gone off. It hasn't gone off. It's sugar. It can't go off. And the way we kind of look at it is, if you want like a good honey that's going to sit nice and neatly on a little bit of blue cheese, 
use some chrysalized honey because it's not going to dribble everywhere. And as you eat it, you get this different mouth feel and because the crystals melt more slowly, the flavors are released more slowly. It's a completely different experience than eating a blended heat-treated honey, if that makes yeah, sense. Yeah. So, yeah, my advice to everybody out there is to, to have like three or four different honeys in your, in your cupboard. If you want to run honey to use in cooking or to drizzle over something, use that. But if you're happy to enjoy the maturation of the product, keep a couple of raw honeys that are going to crystallize and, 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 and change in consistency as they get older. Could you also tell us about beekeeping in different locations across the world and how it differs? For example, I know that the lack of the varroa mite makes us very lucky in Australia with unique conditions. Yeah, well, Australia's just experiencing the last continental golden age of beekeeping on Earth. Like, we have it so lucky here because, as you say, we don't have this little mite called varroa mite, and it is on every other continent apart from Antarctica. And it seems that in Australia, the bees can handle industrial-scale beekeeping. They can handle all the fungicides and pesticides and herbicides that are associated with the use on the crops that their bees are put on to pollinate. And we've got other diseases. We've got small hive beetle. We've got wax moth. We've got European fowl brood, we've got American fowl brood, but the tipping point, the tipping point seems to be this varroa mite. And once varroa enters the bee population, you just see a radical decline in the numbers of bees. And I suspect that it was a major contributing factor to so-called colony collapse disorder, which is the phenomena where bees essentially were just disappearing. But I mean, even more importantly, for so many of my North American beekeeping colleagues, they're losing colonies over winter, every winter. Oh. They're, just, they're just dying. And, you know, I didn't lose one hive over winter, and it's not because I'm an amazing beekeeper. It's just because we have the healthiest, happiest bees in the world. And I'm talking here about the European honeybee too. Um, this varroa mite, there's a couple of different strains of it. It actually started on the Asian honeybee, Apis serrana, and it jumped across. And so the Asian honeybee seemed to be able to tolerate it. But when we took the Western honeybee to Japan, to on Apis serrana japonica, the mites jumped from the Asian honeybee to the Western honeybee, and then all the problems started. So the first big point of difference is that Australia just has these wonderfully happy, really healthy populations of bees. And I think about 70% of our bee populations are actually um, non-domesticated or wild. And only 30% are, are domesticated or, or under management. So you think about what that means for farmers in terms of free pollination and what that means for us and our food security. In America, it's the other way around. 70% of the bees are managed and only 30% are wild. That used to be different before Varroa, but that's what Varroa does to wild populations. In other words, it gets to the point where humans are, are treating the bees, you know, 
in pretty full-on ways with miticides and other chemical treatments to, to basically keep them alive and to keep them going. And not a lot of people realise it. So Australian honey is, you know, so pure and just made with all these, these happy, healthy bees. We also have a common interest in Turkey. And I know that you have some honey-related projects going on in the Black Sea, right? Sure. In fact, I just actually had a message from uh, my friend over there, Oslan, and she's working on getting a honey museum um, up and running. And the wonderful thing about beekeeping is that it brings people together. And I remember posting this image of how the Turks keep bees in that region. And they essentially keep them up on these tree platforms well off the ground. So you'll see this huge tree and there'll be a wooden platform on it with all of these beehives. And the, and the beehives traditionally were really big logs. And they call um, them black hives. Um, and the reason they keep them up on these tree platforms is to keep them away from the bears at ground level. So I actually... Um, when I was over in Turkey last year, we went beekeeping into the honey forest, the Balomani. It's literally called the honey forest. And you sort of drive all the way up into this forest and you park and then you start to hike up through the forest to these special trees, which are these beekeeping trees. And um, our very kind host called me, he signaled to me, we couldn't, the, the language that we shared was beekeeping, but we didn't share a, um, a verbal language. He just signaled to me to come and have a look. And he put his, his hand on the tree and kind of like made a claw shape out of it. And he showed me these big scratches down the tree and they were bears, bears trying to climb the tree, but they couldn't get up the tree. And then, you know, three, four meters above us was the first platform where these hives were. And it's interesting because my friend Oslan is trying to keep the tradition um, alive of, of, of the black hives, which are these traditional um, circular log hives. But modern beekeeping in boxes is kind of displacing it. And also wow. tourism pressure is, is making it harder for the, uh, for the beekeepers to do their, their job in the forest because there's more and more cars coming up more and more tourism, bigger roads, more pressure to produce more honey. And, you know, you get a high yield out of modern hives than you do out of the old cylindrical log hives. And she's trying really, really hard to educate people about the value of traditional beekeeping and also, interestingly, to get women involved in beekeeping because historically it was a men's cultural practice. But there's also a lot of traditions that women have been keeping alive. And so she's doing this wonderful thing where everybody's invited to learn more about beekeeping and to explore the traditions of these karakovan or these, these black hives that sit up in trees. So a lot of people talk about why bees matter to our ecosystem and why beekeeping is so important in this day and age. Could you enlighten us on that a little bit? There's two reasons. The first one is um, more about food systems and a food web. And that is that bees and insects and moths and a whole bunch of other insects and animals 
pollinate so much of the food that we eat. And the concern is that if honeybee populations continue to decline, we're going to see lower food yields in our agricultural crops. It's, it's, it's quite a concern. But more than that, I think that bees have become this kind of, you know, iconic, charismatic species. And we've noticed that human impacts upon honeybee populations, the way that we move them around the world and we've really industrialized the process of beekeeping, we're using a lot of pesticides, a lot of herbicides. They all damage the bees, but not only the bees. They're damaging all sorts of pollinating insects, like butterflies and moths. We're reducing habitat, so there's fewer places for these animals to find their food. Climate change is making it even harder for these animals now to find food because all sorts of things are changing really rapidly. So what's the significance of urban beekeeping and how does it differ from wild bee population or rural beekeeping? I think when we look at bees, we kind of see all of those issues bound up in one cute, charismatic animal. And I think that the act and practice of beekeeping helps you unpack and unravel all of those issues and perhaps look at things a little differently. We like to end our interviews on some speed questions. Can you just say whatever comes into your mind first? So here we go. What is something you've learned that would surprise someone about bees and beekeeping? That they're actually incredibly cute when you look at them. And what's your favourite part of studying and sharing your work with the bees? Every day there's a new article, there's a new observation that you make inside the beehive and you just never, ever stop learning. So if you're a curious person, it's a beautiful practice because essentially it just, you grow for as long as you beekeep. If you could describe beekeeping just using three words, what would they be? Mindful, aromatic and wonderfully dangerous. Thank you for joining us today, Nick. You're very, very welcome. You've just heard the Cleopatra's Bling podcast. Cleopatra's Bling is an independent jewellery brand dedicated to celebrating artisanal jewellery making methods around the world. For more information on Cleopatra's Bling, Go to cleopatrasbling.com and follow us on Instagram at cleopatrasbling. If you want to read an incredible story about bees, check out our Santa Rita Devotion medallion or for a pendant depicting this beautiful creature, our Melissa Bee medallion. This episode was produced by Studio Chenta and was recorded in Melbourne, Australia. 